Well, good morning, everyone. If you will give me just a moment to get technologically prepared to make sure I don't break anything or cause any technical malfunctions. Can you hear me? All right, we're live. Perfect, perfect. Well, all right. Well, good morning again. Thank you all so much for this opportunity that you have given me to be here. Um, I appreciate it tremendously, tremendously. And so I hope, uh, I hope that after making it here that, uh, that I can have some words for you that can be of some encouragement and of some edification. Um, I always like meeting Christians all over, and even though I think I maybe mentioned this last time, which wasn't too long ago, feels like it was, but time goes by pretty fast, I, I do enjoy the opportunity. And I have met some of you before, some of you I haven't. And so, again, thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, if you have your Bible handy, we'll go ahead and we will jump right in. If you want to turn to the book of Revelation, and in chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3 is where we're going to be spending a lot of our time this morning. And as you're turning over there, um, Revelation chapter 3, you may have noticed on the sign out front by the road that the title of our lesson today is Dangerous Indifference. Dangerous Indifference. Um, the idea for this particular lesson you know, whenever I try to, to come up with sermon ideas or think of things to talk about, there is an awful lot in the Bible. I mean, there's a lot in there, a lot of words and very few pictures. And so it's tricky to try to figure out what to discuss, what to think about, what to meditate on. And I've always found it very interesting. Whenever I'm out and about in the world, whether I'm scrolling through Facebook, whether I'm maybe reading into a good history book or just watching television or having a good conversation, something will just click. And, and maybe you have moments like this where something will just click and you'll think maybe, hey, there's a sermon in that. And just the other day, I came across an interesting post on Facebook where that click happened. And I thought, hey, there is some meat and potatoes in this particular post. And so I did some digging, I did some thinking, and it was, I think, uh, very profitable after digging into God's Word. But what that particular post was is what I'm going to share with you. It was a statistic. Now, some of you may like statistics. You know, there's all sorts of statistics out there and how they go about making all these stats and whether or not they're all really true is a task not, uh, not, not fitting for me. I'm not capable of figuring that out as well as a lot of other people. But this statistic that I saw on Facebook is, in fact, a real one. Um, when I first saw it, it kind of you know, had me taken aback because I thought, surely this has to be a fake post, right? Because you know, not everything on the Internet is true. And so I thought, maybe this just isn't real. And so I did some, some Google searching. I surfed the web. I looked around, and lo and behold, it was a real statistic. And it's one that I think maybe you might find interesting too. But here's what the statistic is. The statistic, the statistic, the, we'll just say stat. The stat said that 43% of American millennials, so 43% of people in America that are classified as a millennial. Now, you don't have to raise your hands, but I think there are at least a few here. Now, just to classify officially what a millennial is, I know people blame a lot of things on millennials. I technically am a millennial, so I will defend our honor slightly. A millennial is technically somebody born between 1996 and 1981. Now, I'm not this quick at math. I did the math well before I came here, so I'm not just going to spout this off to you because I'm good at math. But that's roughly people who are between the ages of 26 and 41. So that looks like everybody here, except for maybe a couple. Maybe. Anybody between 26 and 41, you're a millennial, technically. 
And according to this statistic, 43% of people in that age bracket, so almost half, don't know, care, or believe that God exists. Now, how does that make you feel? 43% of American millennials don't know, care, or believe that God exists. When I came across that quote, what you just heard is what I heard in my brain. Nothing. I, I was, whoa, is that true? 43%? Does that mean that about half the people that are around my age bracket and a little bit older don't know, care, or believe that God exists? And when I looked at a few different sources, lo and behold, that was a real study that was done. Now, sure, that number might fluctuate some depending on who did the, the statistic and all the surveying. But that's kind of frightening, isn't it? 43% of American millennials don't know, care, or believe that God exists. And I know in my own personal experiences, when I've spoken to people who, who claim to not be Christians or maybe self-proclaimed atheists, I've noticed that the most common tends to be that they just simply don't care. You know, a lot of people I've spoken with, and maybe you as well, you may come across people who, who know God doesn't exist. They know. And they've maybe read one book or watched one show, and they know. Or maybe people who aren't really for sure about whether God exists, and they say they want to know. And, and for me, again, in my experiences, it seems that most people just simply don't care. And that's frightening, isn't it? Now, and I'll share this with you today. You might think, Luke, why, why are you telling me this? You know, this, you know, this is not good news. I mean, it's a nice sunny day. Why do we want to hear this on a Sunday? Well, here's the thing. It should matter to us for a couple of reasons. One, as Christians, we should care about other people's souls. I mean, I, I think we'd all agree with that. So if we know that about half of the people in an entire generation don't know, care, or believe that God exists, that should trouble us. I mean, one of our chief responsibilities is to spread the gospel while we're here on this earth for a very short amount of time. So, so it should be uh, discouraging and, and very uh, interesting to us from that perspective. But secondly, I think it should be interesting to us because even though we might care and even though we might know and we might believe, it's very possible that we could slip into that category, don't you think? You ever had things in life that you cared about before, but the more you did it, the less you cared? You know, when I was really little, there was things I'd get just, man, I like. We were just, talk, we were just talking about Star Wars not too long ago. When I was little, I loved Star Wars. I mean, if you ask me, you know, everything about Star Wars, the laser blasters, the lightsabers, I mean, my name is Luke, Luke Skywalker. I thought I was named after him. I wasn't. I love Star Wars, but now... I don't know what's going on. I mean, there's 50 different shows now. I don't know. I don't care. I'm not as interested. I'm indifferent. So do you think that maybe that's possible spiritually? Perhaps it is. And so at least two good reasons as to why that's important. So now, what in the world can we do with that information? Well, I'm convinced in God's Word we can find solutions, advice, and all sorts of situations and stories that can help us through a number of situations. And in the book of Revelation chapter 3, I think there is a unique story that has a very good application to this idea of so many people having an indifferent attitude towards God. Now, to give you a little bit of the context here in Revelation chapter 3, um, in Revelation, this book, it's a very interesting book. It's full of what's called apocalyptic literature. Not apocalypse literature, apocalyptic literature. There is a difference. And in this book, John wrote it, and at the very beginning, he addressed that these are things which will, which will shortly come to pass, and he specifically addressed seven churches of Asia. And so in the first couple of chapters, 
he directly addresses these churches. And in chapter 3 and in verse 14 where we're about to get started, he addressed a church in Laodicea. And with each of these churches, he was essentially just, just offering his criticisms. Some churches he was very pleased with, some he was very disappointed with. And so God, through John, was really revealing a lot of information for these Christians. And by verse 14, we get to one of these churches in a place known as Laodicea. And if you want to follow along with me, we'll start in chapter 3 and in verse 14. And this is what we read. Or excuse me, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write... The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have uh, become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so we read about the church in Laodicea. Maybe you've read that before. You might remember them as the, as the lukewarm church. And we'll get into that here in just a spell. So what in the world is going on here in Laodicea? Well, these Christians are addressed immediately in a rather uh, shocking way. Um, you know, as this letter is being wrote to them, the first thing that they see is, I know your deeds. You know, God is all-knowing, isn't he? I think it's Hebrews 4, there is nothing hidden from his sight. Proverbs 15, he knows every good deed, every bad deed we've ever done, we ever are doing or going to do. He's all-knowing. There's nothing we can hide from God. But have you ever got a phone call before and all somebody has said is, I know what you did? You know, me and my brothers and my older sister, would you believe me if I told you we used to aggravate each other occasionally? And we would maybe mess with each other or maybe me and my friends, we would maybe go up to them and say, I know what you did. I know what you said, just to see what you could get out of them in case they actually did do something. It was never really a good thing for somebody to approach you and say, I know what you did, and not say anything. Well, here, that's what these Christians are told. So already right out of the gate, it might be kind of an, an uncomfortable scenario, especially after what they've read about other churches. And God says to them, I know your deeds. And what seems to be the issue? What does he know about them? Well, he calls them out for saying, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. Now, is God really concerned with their temperature? You know, is it a beauty contest? Is that what this is? Some of you are attractive, some of you aren't. No, no, no. He's making a metaphor. And in this metaphor, he is referring to their deeds, their conduct, some versions say. And God says, I know your conduct. I, I know what you've done. I know how you are. I know what kind of people you are. And he's disappointed because they're not hot or cold. But instead, they are merely lukewarm people. 
And as a result of this lukewarmness, he says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Some versions there say vomit, but I'll just stick with spit. Pretty, pretty harsh words these Christians in Laodicea received. You know, if you look up that word lukewarm, you know, the original wording here, it, it does exactly literally mean to, to not be hot or cold, but to be of, of medium temperature. But essentially what they're being told is because they're neither one way or the other, they're merely what you might call fence riders. You know, they're riding the fence. You know, this word lukewarmness is a word that also is associated with this idea of half-heartedness or lack of enthusiasm or indifference. And so in regards to their conduct, he paints this picture of, uh, of temperatures and says you're not one way or the other. Instead, you're, you're right down the middle. But as a result, just as if you were bad, I want nothing to do with you. Now, you, know, you might think, well, that's a rather weird way of saying it. But if you've ever been outside on a really hot day and you have a nice cold glass of sweet tea and then you let it sit for an hour, what happens to the ice? Well, it melts. And after it melts... Maybe you get real thirsty, you go to take a drink. How do you like it? It's not very good. You, you, you want to spit it out. If it's really cold and you want a hot cup of coffee or a hot cup of hot chocolate, you go inside, you, you're ready for that warmth, but you've let it sit for too long. It's warm. It doesn't taste good. And so right from the very beginning, God makes it clear that when it comes to being indifferent towards him, he doesn't like it. He doesn't like it. He says, I'll spit you out of my mouth. I want nothing to do with you. But now, but now, wait a minute. If I'm halfway a Christian, surely that's better than not being a Christian at all. Not in the eyes of God. He makes it clear right out of the gates. He does not want indifferent Christians. He does not want us to be indifferent or unenthusiastic or half-hearted towards him. So we could close it up there and say, there's the warning about indifference. Don't be indifferent because God doesn't like it. But we're not going to stop there. He warns us of that. And if you've read other parts of Scripture, that should come as no surprise, right? If you think back to, to Matthew, and in chapter 12 and in verse 30, Jesus made it clear that he who is not with me is against me. And so when we think of ourselves as Christians, we're all in. We should be. We should be very enthusiastic, wholehearted about serving him. And so that... Easy, easy to admit, easy to agree with. Certainly as Christians it should be to know that, hey, if we belong to Christ, if we belong to him, if we are Christians, we don't need to be indifferent towards him, obviously. We shouldn't be. And here is a perfect example of Christians who were struggling with that, and they were reminded to not be in such a state. But this isn't all that these Christians in Laodicea were told. Because when you think about that in regards to our circumstances today, for one... And based on our stat, we live in a world where very many people are seemingly indifferent towards God. And really and truly, that shouldn't be a surprise either, right? And going back to the book of Matthew, you might recall that wide is the path, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many there will be that find it. I mean, God made it clear, and especially Jesus in the Gospels, most people will not be interested in what he has to say. But when you think about our circumstances today and we think about the lukewarm attitude in the world around us, you might begin to wonder, well, why is this a problem? How is this happening? What seems to be the cause? Well, after what we just read, if you want to skip with me down to verse 17 and 18, we kind of see the circumstances of the people in Laodicea. 
And if you're like me, your initial thoughts might have been, well, things must have been really bad for people to not care about God. But ironically, things seem to be pretty good. How good were, it, were the times in Laodicea? Well, if you look in verse 17, we read that they have this attitude of almost pride and, and that they don't need anything else. Verse 17 says, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, before we go any further, here these Christians in Laodicea felt like they had it all. Seemingly, the Christians in Laodicea were very well off, very well to do. They had this attitude of thinking, hey, I'm rich. I've become wealthy. I, I don't need anything else. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't said that in a long time. I always want more. But these people had so much. We don't need anything else. We're rich. We're well off. We, we've got enough. So seemingly it was in this very prosperous time that this danger of indifference was just being fostered. It was just flustering up in a very prosperous time for these Christians. And yet, what's the irony of this? Well, the irony is that they think themselves wealthy. They think of themselves as a, as a very successful, prosperous, they've got everything they could ever need, but the irony is they're not as rich as they thought they are, are they? No, no, that was the catch. Because a little bit later, verse 17, we're told, And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Imagine if you went up to Bill Gates and said, You are the poorest person I've ever seen. I'm just picking on him because I know he has a lot of money. Imagine if you went up to the wealthiest person you know and you said, You're dirt poor. Probably wouldn't be a very polite thing to say, for one. If I'm taken aback a little bit, why? Well, because when we think of wealth, we think of it as a, as a, as a money thing. We think of it as a stuff thing. The more you have, the wealthier you are. Oh, that was the cord. That's all this is. Am I good? Okay, okay. We'll turn it off. Didn't want you to think it was something else. But anyway. Oh, you're good. You're good. Can you hear me Okay. Okay, good. If, if you can't, just wave at me. But anyway, and so when we think of this, this indifferent attitude, these Christians, they thought they had it all and they didn't. They weren't as rich as they thought they were. That was the irony of it. Again, we touched on some, some great verses in Bible class for a second. I thought maybe, I, maybe we swapped notes for a second there for a little bit. But yeah, there's several places in Scripture which warn about this idea of, of true wealth, true riches. Doesn't, doesn't, is, is not based upon physical things. It's based on the spiritual things. It's not based upon the amount of money we have in our bank account, the amount of stuff we've got stuffed away in our basement. It doesn't matter about that kind of stuff. It's based upon the spiritual things. And so in verse 18, they got some really good advice. You know, if you've ever messed up before, maybe somebody says, hey, I've got some advice for you. Now, most of us probably don't like getting advice because that means we're wrong. But if you're ever trying to work on something and you can't get it fixed and somebody says, hey, here's some advice for you, it might make you cringe a little bit, but hey, these Christians had some really good advice and they were told, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You see, they were being told essentially to turn to the spiritual things. God was letting them know that he had things much more valuable, true riches, things that were lasting. Things that were really just really valuable. You think about clothing. 
You know, we think of physical clothing as important, but we touched on Ephesians 6. There's some spiritual clothing that's a lot more important, isn't there? You know, we might spend a lot of time worrying about what we look like on the outside. Maybe we struggle with that, like these Christians in Laodicea, more so than we worry about what we wear spiritually. Or maybe we think that we see things very clearly. Maybe we think, well, I've got all the technology in the world. I mean, I've got a computer in my pocket that, that's told me everything I need to know. I see things very clearly, but maybe we don't spend time really seeing the world as it is through some real lenses, right? Something, something to think about. And again, as we think about all of these things, maybe you're recognizing different things that we have issues with, very similar to this in our world, in our country. It's a real and prevalent problem. This idea of thinking we've got enough. We don't need anything else. And as a result, maybe we do notice people growing indifferent towards God. You know, there's a really good proverb if you want to turn over the book of Proverbs real quick. Over in the book of Proverbs and in chapter 30. You might call this a, a content man's prayer maybe. But we touched on this at, at, our, at my church a while back. It doesn't seem like that long ago, but I think it was several months ago. But over in Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30 down in verse 7. The wise man said, Two things I asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Man, if we just had a, a content attitude like that, right? Despite how wealthy we are, if we just said, hey, when it comes to the physical stuff, just give me what I need. It's the spiritual stuff that I want an endless buffet of. Something to think about. But as we get ready to go down to verse 19, things have been really harsh. You know, if you've ever been in trouble before, nobody likes the scolding. It doesn't feel good. But years down the road, you look back on it and you think, well, that was maybe good for me after all. Well, the Laodicean Christians, they're, they're in the thick of it. They're in the heat of the moment, you know, they've gotten the whipping, they're getting in trouble. But now verse 19 is where they're reminded why they're being criticized in such a way. Because it's in verse 19, they're told, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. You know anybody here ever got in trouble before? Okay, two. Nice. <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> the rest of you will understand one day. Now, we've all gotten in trouble before. How many of you liked getting in trouble? You know, back, I don't know, don't tell the folks this, but back home, we used to have a yellow stick about this big. Need I say more? It sat on the top of Dad's closet. All he had to say was stick. And I knew, I knew what was coming. I knew it. I did not like that. I despised it. And when the deed was done, oh, we were never going to talk again. I wasn't going to invite him to my birthday party. We weren't going to hang out. I was going to move out. That's what I said. Anytime I got in trouble, I'm going to move in with granddad and granny. I'm leaving. In fact, I think I used to say I'm going to get granddad to give you a whipping. Uh, that wasn't a good idea. They'd like it. We don't like to get in trouble. Or maybe when we get a little bit older and maybe we're at work and you mess something up and somebody says, what were you thinking? That's a sewer line, not a water line. Or vice versa. And you get in trouble. We don't like that. But God reminds them, look, he says, I'm not saying this to be a big bully with a magnifying glass. 
You know, when we think about God criticizing mankind, in our culture, some people don't like that. They think that God's just a big bully. But here we're reminded, these Christians are reminded, if, if at this point in the argument they're starting to get discouraged, they're reminded, hey, this isn't because God doesn't like you. This isn't because God's just, he's done with you, but it's because he cares. And he told these Christians, he said, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Now, God shouldn't have had to say that, but any time I'd get in trouble, it never failed. I was all said and done, and the battle was over. Dad would come to the den. I'd run straight to the den. I don't know why. I'd go to the den, bury myself under pillows. It, it never failed. By the end of the day, we'd be friends again. Because here's the thing. We don't like that idea of getting in trouble, but as Christians, when we think about maybe if some of these words are pricking our hearts a little bit, and we think, well, I don't know about this. I'm, you know, I'm... What's, what's the big deal with this? Okay, maybe I'm not as enthusiastic about God as I should be. Well, this is important. We, could, we should be enthusiastic. But these Christians were reminded that this was being done, this, this criticism was being sent their way because God cared. You know, the better thing to say is if you were maybe a church that didn't get a letter. That would be really concerning, right? Maybe that would be the better attitude. Why, why am I not receiving some discipline? Because I'm not perfect. Maybe you think about again... We could think about that a lot of different ways, but if you think about homes where children grow up and homes where parents just don't care, you know, I think that's a, that's a really good analogy to think about because, you know, if you think of a child who grew up in a home where his, where his parents just really didn't like him, he might get tough, right? He might at least get some thick skin. Or maybe if he grows up in a home where his parents really do care about him, he might grow up with a very loving attitude. But if he grows up in a home where his parents just don't care, that's sad. And yet as Christians here, you had Christians who were having an indifferent attitude towards God. And God wanted them to know, hey, I, I'm not indifferent towards you. You might be indifferent towards me, but I'm not indifferent towards you. And he makes it clear that he is, is, is sending them this reproof and discipline because he cares. And so what's the solution? You know, this whole time we've been addressing the problem. We've been making connections between the problems of today and the problems of Laodicea years ago. But what's the solution? Well, in just a few words, here it is. Be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. It's interesting. Simple solution. A lot easier said than done, though. But instead of this lackadaisical, indifferent attitude towards God, God simply informed the Christians, here's what you need to do. Instead of being half-hearted towards me, you need to be zealous. Now, if you're zealous about something, you strongly desire it. In fact, I think this, this, this Greek word there for zealous also connects to the idea of being envious or jealous. Now, you might think, well, wait a minute. Jealousy is bad, but you might recall in the Old Testament, God described himself as a jealous God. Not in the context of, oh, I want this, you can't have it, but... He was jealous of us in the sense that he loved mankind that much. He was jealous for him. So if we think of this idea of being zealous for God, in a way, it's not the exact same, but similar to this idea of, of, hey, we want it. We want God. We want to draw closer to God. And what else do we need to do? We need to have an attitude of repentance. You know, if somebody repents from something, they do a complete change of heart, a, co a complete reconsideration. You know, mathematically, if you have a, a line that goes this way, you might think of repentance as a complete 180-degree turn. You know, if you've got a line that's going due north, well, if you want to repent, you want to go the complete opposite direction. Not slightly different or not almost there, completely different. 
They needed to repent. You know, back in the book of Acts and in chapter 2, when Peter was giving his famous gospel sermon, many of those people were pricked to the heart when they heard the truth about Jesus. They heard about his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so when they were criticized, when they were preached to, these Jews responded, hey, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said almost the exact same thing, didn't he? Of course, his difference was he wasn't speaking to Christians. What was different about it? Well, he told them they needed to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. And so here we're already speaking to Christians. So for these Christians, there was no need to be rebaptized, but their necessity lied in repenting from their wrong. And so that is their encouraging words. That's what they were told to do. But when we finally get to this last couple of verses here, there were still a few more words these Christians in Laodicea needed to hear. Because by verse 20, they were told, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears me, or excuse me, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, I've, we've been very fortunate. Nobody's ever broke into our home. But if somebody wants to come in, you know what they do? They knock. They knock. If they wanted to, to force their way in, they wouldn't have knocked, right? Well, here, these Christians are told, so you know, you know, God through John is telling them, hey, behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know, again, keep in mind, he is talking to some Christians who are, again, they're struggling with indifference. And he wanted them to know, hey, I'm here, and I want you. Again, why is he saying all this? Because he loves them. That's why he, he cares. Because he loves us. And so in verse 20, he says, hey, I stand at the door and knock. And he said, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. I think ultimately another way to think of these last few verses is essentially these Christians are told the ball is in your court. Now that's the, the Luke version. That's obviously not the exact way it's worded. But after all of this encouragement, this encouragement to flee from indifference, to choose God, to be zealous, to repent, to pursue Him, by verse 20 it's confirmed that it's up to you. It's up to the individual. You know, we live in a society now, we mentioned, with a lot of false doctrines. And, and there's some people who believe that when one becomes a Christian, your choice has no part in the matter. But I think this is just one of many verses which convey that, hey, your choice does matter. You know, God could have said, behold, I stand at the door and I'm coming in, whether you want me here or not. But he didn't say that. He could have said, hey, I'm at the door, but, but, but because you chose to be indifferent towards me, you have got no chance. But he didn't say that either. But he said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. You know, that idea of being close to God, of being with God, is really the goal, isn't it? You know, in the book of Psalms and in chapter 73, I know it's been a while, but the last time I was here, we talked about Psalm 73. And at the very end of that psalm, it's written by a guy named Asaph. He struggled with a lot of temptations in the world in his thoughts. There's a lot of just tempting thoughts that he had, but towards the very end of it, he said, the nearness of God is my good. 
You know, if you think of that idea of dining with God, of being with God, of being in His presence, that's really the goal of it all, the goal of heaven, the goal of everything. You know, some people think, what's so good about heaven? Well, because you know, God's there. That's what's so good about it. That's what we're striving for. And so may we recognize, as verse 21 talks about, another way to consider it is we'll reap what we sow. We'll reap what we sow. And so if we have an ear... And we've heard these words, and we know that we should not be indifferent towards God. I challenge you to be that much less indifferent and more wholehearted, more enthusiastic towards serving God and being who he would have us to be. And again, if you're here and you're a Christian this morning, and that's something maybe you've struggled with from time to time, and maybe you've felt as though there's been times in your life where you've been indifferent, well, hey, those Christians in Laodicea struggled with it too. But no, it's not okay to settle for that. We need to be all in for the Lord. But if we're here and we're Christians and we notice people, though, who are struggling with that, maybe we aren't struggling with it, but we notice people out in the world who are. Maybe we've seen for, maybe some of those people who fit in that 43% category, and we know they don't care. Well, I challenge you to think of ways to get them to care. Encourage them to care. Because it matters. You know, there was a book. Oh, it was called The Grapes of Wrath. I think I shared this not too long ago with some people back home. But there was a quote in that book, in The Grapes of Wrath. And I've never read it, and I certainly want to. But in that book, there was a gentleman who died. And when this gentleman died on their journey, they asked this man who used to be a preacher. And they said, Preacher, say a few words. And he said, Well, he just died out of it. He said, And I think one of the quotes he said, And he lived a life, and that don't matter much. But here's the thing, our life does matter because the way we live now on this temporary earth, it matters because that is going to determine our eternity. So again, and for the more reason, we should care. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you know that you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins, you know you need to, to, to make that decision, I would encourage you to do that this morning. But maybe you're here and you're not for sure. You'd like to talk about that. Hey, I'm here and several fine fellows here as well who I'm sure would love to talk to you. But if there's anything we can help you with, um, again, I encourage you, I encourage you, flee from indifference, choose to put God first and be wholehearted about it. But if there's anything we can help you with this morning, I would encourage you to, to take advantage, take advantage of our time together while we stand and while we sing the song of invitation.